This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hi, this is Alan Clark of the Hollies, and you're listening to Pantheon Podcast. Pantheon Podcasts presents Deeper Digs in Rock, part of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. Music, culture, technology, and rock and roll. Now... On with the show. Hey, hey, my, my. Rock and roll can never die. It's better to burn out than to fade away, diggers. All right. Week four, a whole month of uh, hunkering down in uh, our little social isolation. Uh, this new experiment that we are trying. Um,. I don't know. You know, uh, there's some good and there's some bad about it. Uh, I mean, I get up every morning, drink some coffee, come out, be creative uh, all day long. Um, and, uh, you know, and then uh, it's uh, five o'clock, six o'clock, uh, somewhere around there. And uh, it's time to start drinking. Um, I, I will say the alcohol consumption has gone up quite a bit in this house. Uh, I'm going to have to try to figure out a way to replenish because um, uh, the vodka, uh, my, my personal drink of choice, is r- running rather low. Not sure what we're going to do about that. Anyway, uh, remember, uh, it's not about you, but who you might spread the virus to that will become horribly sick or even die Nobody wants that on their conscience. Uh, of course, keep going to uh, cdc.gov or who.int for all the best medical information out there. Stay safe, stay sane while we get through this pandemic, this entire shutdown, this crisis that uh, most of us uh, have never experienced um, uh, in our lives. Um, you know, uh, it, it's been mentioned, and I agree. This is on par to uh, you know a World War II type event. It's a global uh, issue that is uh, affecting 
um, most of the uh, the populace on the planet in one way or another, and will continue to do so for a while. Um, remember, uh, you know, we, we have to get a vaccine uh, to get to the end of this, and uh, some estimates are uh, up to 18 months. That is a long time. So, uh, and, you know, every day, um, you know, the paper boy brings more uh, bad news. Uh, you know, we lost John Prine uh, this week. That um, was uh, really, really a, 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 a tough loss uh, for many of us, uh, directly related to COVID-19. Um, you know, Bill Withers uh, was another one. Uh, uh, he was 81 and apparently was more of a, of a, um, uh, 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 you know, natural causes, uh, heart ailment. Uh, Adam Schlesinger from Fountains of Wayne, uh, that was directly related to COVID-19. Um, he was only 52. Uh, and that should make you concerned about, uh, about this, uh, this virus. Um, it, it, uh, we don't know enough about it. We just don't know where it's, um, where it's going to come, where it's going to go, who it's going to hit and how hard, uh, you know, uh, of course, the, the, the big concern is not overwhelming the healthcare system. Uh, we're lucky out here in California. We've actually done pretty good compared to most of the states. We have over 20,000 cases, 21,606 as of today, with uh, 601 deaths. But, uh, you know, compared to New York with 181,000 cases and uh, almost 9,000 deaths, that's pretty crazy. Um, you got Florida coming up quick on California, um, and they probably are a couple of weeks behind. And, and I think that's something to just bring out real quick is, please remember, it's not about today with, with when, you're, when you're tracking a, a pandemic. It's about the future that there's an incubation period and that incubation period can last for up to 14 days it seems and in the 14 days you can affect um many people up to um i think uh on average uh two plus people for everybody who's infected uh and there also it appears to be a large group of asymptomatic um, carriers, uh, maybe between 20 and 50%, which don't know they have it, show very minimal signs, if any, of having the disease, but they're passing it along everywhere out there. So those are the reasons why we're social distancing and uh, sheltering in place in, uh, in all of that. So... Be careful going out to the stores. Uh, I've noticed it's getting rougher out there. Um, you know, at least uh, here in California, everybody's wearing masks or most people are wearing masks, gloves. Uh, I do when I when I go out uh, and um uh, you know the stores are have uh, some uh, some shelving uh, and stock issues. Uh, you know, uh, a week ago uh, when I when I made my run, uh, you know, I had to go to five different stores to get everything, and uh, uh, I called it Soviet shopping because um, you know it was was uh, it was like back in the back in the Soviet Union, uh, all those uh, reports we Westerners would hear about, which would never happen in America. Well, now it's happening in America. So hopefully this is a temporary issue and we will get through that. So, 
Of course, if you uh, have nothing better to do uh, than shop online, uh, you know, there's free stuff at adamandeve.com if you are willing to use D-I-G-S digs at checkout. Uh, you can select any single item, well, almost any single item for 50% off. And then um, Adam and Eve will uh, add a bunch of free things for you. Uh, 10 uh, um, rather uh, sexy gifts uh, and um, uh, six free spicy movies. Plus the shipping is free. Go to adamandeve.com to get all of that and more. Um, whoever you are uh, sleeping with, yeah, they'll probably uh, dig you even more for that. All right, adamandeve.com. Digs is the code to use for all that free stuff. All right, let's get to the show. Got a good one for you today. We are going to talk a lot about these guys. I think we all need a holiday in the sun. And uh, like Mr. Lydon, uh, I'm always up for something historical. I don't know about you. Uh, of course, John was being satirical and provoking by taking his quote-unquote vacation to the Berlin Wall uh, and wondering what is on the other side of it and if it was better than his England of the time. Um the Berlin Wall was a real and threatening thing back in 1977, where East met West in the Cold War. As most of you know, uh, the wall and the totalitarian system on the eastern side collapsed back in 1989 and uh, was completely removed uh, in 1991. I even have a piece of uh, it sitting around here somewhere. So, yeah, the bloody sex pistols. Uh, caused a lot of noise for a moment, uh, and it was only for a moment. Officially together from 75 to 78, though their impact was more 76, 77, the last show being January uh, 14th of 1978. Yes, a, a great debut album. Uh, a shocking appearance on uh, British telly that created mayhem for the band, uh, but delighted their mercurial manager, Malcolm McLaren, um, a secret movie, uh, the rock and roll swindle, uh, a failed U.S. tour that pretty much destroyed the band along with their new bassist, Sid Vicious. And uh, that was it for the original incarnation. Johnny Rotten, Steve Jones, Paul Cook, and Glenn Matlock really are the pistols. 
and had that lineup had a real manager to build them a solid system to thrive in, uh, they might have made it a bit longer. Uh, of course, McLaren was interested only in the shock value, and when Matlock left, only to repl be replaced by weak musician, but uh, yeah, certainly boy who looked the part, Sid Vicious. Well, it's kind of surprising they got anywhere at all. Um, yes, they did explode on the scene and make the first big noise for this new punk rock music, uh, as well as burning out so quickly. Uh, and that is the stuff legends are made of. Uh, and if you ask me, and a lot of other people, the Pistols are indeed legendary. With um, songs about the Queen being a moron, about abortion, the vacant youth in London, and of course literally calling for anarchy in the UK in song, well, in 1976, <laughs> that would get you a lot of attention. Of course, uh, the legends are very different to the realities. While the band did get a lot of press for their and their fans' antics, in reality, the scene, like most new scenes, was small. Very small, but hugely influential. Especially in the UK at the time, because the establishment really did try to keep these kids down, thinking it really would lead to some kind of anarchy in the social order, especially after their God Save the Queen song lost them the EMI record contract. Uh, nothing like uh, having your record banned for maximum impact. Anyway, with official England dreaming this would all go away, the plan was to do the same with America. Again, for shock value, instead of booking concerts in, say, New York or L.A. or, you know, other more cultured places uh, where these guys could get a foothold and establish themselves here in the States, McLaren booked dates in the Deep South, with the single exception being at the Winterland Ballroom on January 14th, 1978, in San Francisco, which wound up being the last show the band played until getting back together in 1996. But right before they left on that fateful American tour, they played one final show in the UK on Christmas Day in 1977. And that is what our discussion is all about today. Kevin Cummings was there to photograph the band, and he has published a beautiful coffee table book about the last show called Sex Pistols. The end is near 25-12-77. 180 pages of photos he took that night in Huddersfield, which is about 45 minutes outside of Manchester. So, of course, Kevin was there to document the event though nobody knew it would be their last glimpse of the punk rockers on British soil. Along with rock journalist Paul Morley, uh, <clears throat> who contributed the foreword to the book, Kevin championed the Manchester scene as early as the mid-1970s. In fact, he and Paul kind of invented the Manchester scene by demanding and then receiving attention from the London press. Both went on to long careers with the New Musical Express, or NME, as it's called, uh, which, if you remember, is called out in the song Anarchy in the UK, by the way. 
Kevin goes on to capture images of Manchester and cool Britannia eras as well. Uh, he was very close to Joy Division, and as you'll hear, uh, including probably the most famous shot of the influential band, uh, he worked particularly well with Morrissey of the Smiths and Courtney Love, uh, as well. Um, I have no doubt if you loved the English music scene that you have seen his photos many, many times. So other uh, piece to know about uh, this book is that the surviving members do make comments uh, throughout it alongside the photographs. So let's get into the conversation. I give you all Mr. Kevin Cummings. Welcome to Deeper Digs and Rock, Kevin Cummins. How are you doing today? Um, bearing up. Bearing uh, up. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy times, huh? Uh, very, yeah. yeah. Not, we're, not, we're not allowed out of the house. We've, uh, you know, the internet's come in, into its own now where everybody is stuck. Yeah. It because nobody's allowed to go walk the streets. Yeah, social distancing uh, and, and all of that. Uh, you know, it became very. Um, real for us in the last week uh I, I i may have been a little bit more of ahead of the curve just on news wise and things like that but but in the last week every day just becomes um well i i i'm not sure about christmas day in 1977 though we'll, we'll take some time and a, a bit of this discussing that particular sex pistols gig but it sure looks like the end is near now huh um, it does actually, although um, what I did talk a couple of weeks ago in Manchester and they advertised it as the end is nigh. So <laughs> yes, um, it is. <laughs> quite, quite prescient, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's crazy times, uh, you know, between uh, the, 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 the new world order, whatever that may be, uh, that's uh, occurred over the last uh, couple of years uh, with us. Uh, uh, you know, uh, electing the clown in chief and, and you guys deciding that uh, you wanted to cut your nose off to spite your face uh, in the European uh, uh, community, huh? Uh, I'm completely blameless there. I didn't, <laughs> yes. I didn't, I didn't vote for Brexit. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Uh, and uh, I certainly did not vote for uh, Twitler. Mm. So... <laughs> We are we are stuck with what we've got, and hopefully it is a temporary problem. Well, let's hope so. These things tend to be, don't they? Yeah, you know, hot-blooded, uh, you know, fever dreams and all that. Uh, and then, uh, you know, something like what we are going through right now, a pandemic, which, you know, you can't yell and scream at and lie to. It's going to come and do what it does, whether you want to or not. 
Well, there's you know, and there's no gigs for anyone to go to. So yeah, I know. Um, Relive 1977. Yeah. Well, actually, you know, I, I, if the last gig that I got to go to was the Struts a week ago, it was at Winterland Ballroom, which was the the last gig for the Sex Pistols. That's true. Yeah, it was actually. Yeah. Um, it was probably the only recognizable venue on the list of American yeah. dates that yeah. they did as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll talk about that. But before we get into Johnny Rotten and the boys, um, you know, tell us about your life in the UK and how you came to become a photographer. Um, how long is this podcast? Is it like a six-parter? <laughs> it can be uh, as long as you want, Kevin. Uh, that's the beauty of podcasting. Uh, yeah, there are I'll, no rules. <laughs> I'm good at sound bites. Then I'll, uh, I studied photography. Um, my father was a keen amateur, as was my maternal grandfather. Uh, and so um, it was kind of natural that um, I studied it maybe and took it a step further than they ever did. Right, I don't think right. I ever thought it could be a job. Um, and But while I was uh, while I was at art school, um, I used to go, obviously, go to gigs. I was always really interested in music anyway. And the first thing I took photographs of was David Bowie's Ziggy Stardust tour. Yeah, I read that, 1973. I, I, and uh, you actually tried to take a shot uh, of um, a mime piece, and I think uh, I think you felt you were in the wrong place, so you went and saw the gig again, right? Yeah, I did, and I got the shot I wanted. And it kind of, you know, I mean, obviously, it taught, you know, I've been taught various various things anyway but this taught me never to settle for the first picture you get always try mm -hmm. and achieve something better if you can yeah which is uh you know a, a lot of the, the folks that take uh pictures on their their iphones and uh and smartphones and what have you don't understand that um, you know the cost of photography back in the day was uh, quite exorbitant huh Absolutely. You know, when I worked, first started working for the NME, New Musical Express, which was, um, you know. Yeah, you're a Rolling Stone type of. Well, magazine. it was. And we used to proudly say that it was the world's biggest selling rock weekly, partly because most countries didn't have a rock weekly, but um, it was the best seller here as well. And um, in 1977, uh, it used to probably cost me in US dollars to shoot two rolls of film and process it, maybe $30. And if the enemy published one photograph, I'd get close to $10 for it. So <laughs> the economics lose... are not working out for you there, Kevin. No, I, I used to lose $20 on each shoot I did, but I kind of thought I was building an interesting archive. I graduated when punk started and I just wanted to do something with my with my time and with my knowledge and not many people were around uh documenting that kind of scene it, certainly not in Manchester where I lived yeah, yeah. Uh, so I thought it was down to me to do it really 
Yeah, yeah. So uh, before I move into the Manchester scene, because we're going to go there in just a second, but, you know, how, how do you feel about the average Joe taking pics with their smartphone versus, you know, back in the day when only the credentialed uh, could take shots like yourself? Um, it, it, well, the only reason it bothers me is because I if I go to a gig, um, it's it's very difficult to see the gig without having to watch it on the back of someone's iPhone. Yeah. Um, it spoils the atmosphere completely. I don't understand why people do it. I understand why, you know, why people might take one shot. Right. But why, why stand there filming it? <laughs> the whole night. It? Right. You're, you're, you're not, you're missing the moment. You're in the moment. Put the camera down. <laughs> Exactly. It's not important. You're not documenting your life. <laughs> and just enjoy the gig. And these days, I think promoters and bands are thinking more and more about this. And Jack White has this system where um, you put your phone in a lock bag and you can't use it and you just enjoy the gig. And, you know, um, it's like people think it's like coming off heroin or something. They don't seem <laughs> to understand that you don't have to take photographs all the time. I, as a professional photographer, when I'm at a gig, I don't take pictures all the way through it. So stop doing it. Yeah, if, Just, if, you're, if you're not doing it, why are they doing it, right? Well, what do they do with it? When they when they film it, what do they do? Do they invite people round for dinner the next day and say, <laughs> I went to a great gig, I didn't watch it, but it was great, but come and watch it. I've done it on my iPhone and it's really shaky and the sound's crap. What do they do? Yeah, uh, it's uh, it's like uh, visiting your aunt and uncle when they just got back uh, back in the 60s and 70s with their carousel, you know, their Kodak carousel uh, slideshow. Yeah, it is a bit. And it's... <laughs> Um, yeah, you no, know, there's a funny story about this one. Oh, and I'm sorry, oh, this one's upside down. Oh, hang on a minute. Oh, I'll, yeah, yeah, yeah. Hold, uh, on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Uh, yeah, and the whole narrative's ruined. Yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. Enjoy the gig. Yes, yeah, and you, I, I think, you know, uh, I, I think maybe, um, I've noticed uh, it's maybe not as prevalent and as obnoxious as it was even just a few years ago. Uh, uh, yeah, to your point, uh, some of the bands, uh, you know, are uh, demanding uh, that the uh, the cameras uh, be locked or not used. Uh, I, I went and saw King Crimson, uh, oh, about two years ago, and, uh, you know, they were insistent that uh, if anybody pulled the camera out, they would be removed from the show until the very end where they said, okay, now you can pull your cameras out and take some pictures and, and then there you go and then you know take a selfie and move on right yeah it's almost like a lot of people don't really understand that you know i mean the you know the gig exists in your memory you don't need a picture you don't need this aid memoir that, that, that a lot of people seem to think they need you know i think the other problem you've got with digital photography is because bands use it all the time, they're destroying iconography because I think the scarcity of something and... Makes it more um, valuable, yeah. Yeah, and rock and roll, you know, I, we always thought the dressing room was sacrosanct before a gig, and if we were ever invited in, we felt really privileged, mm -hmm. whereas now bands are filming themselves in the dressing room and putting it on social media before they go on stage. And nothing, there's, there's no secrets anymore. 
uh, get, bands are in danger of giving too much information away, uh, and I, I don't need to do it. I know exactly what you mean. I, I, I'm I'm a uh, a professional musician myself. And, you know, when I was younger and first started doing this and, you know, up until maybe the last 10 or 15 years, you know, it, there I could see in the eyes of the audience that, wow, what you're doing up there is really special. And that's changed. Now I see the audience of like, oh, yeah, I think I can do that, too. Uh, and uh, to your point, it's just it's removed all of the uniqueness and mystery that, you know, you would get from the, you know, that fourth wall there uh, of the stage. Absolutely. But, you know, as as, uh, you know, David Bailey has said when he was asked a similar question about, you know, how, how do you feel now that everybody is a photographer? And he said, um, well, they're not photographers. They're, they're just people who take pictures. He said, if you gave me a piece of paper and a pencil, it wouldn't mean I was Picasso. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, a lot of people, you know, with the the all the, uh, I, you know, I mean, let's face it. Number one, that the some of these newer phones are extraordinary uh, pieces of equipment that take amazing uh, photographs, regardless of the eye of the uh, the photographer uh, behind the, uh, the the smartphone there. Uh, and then you add all the filters and all of this other thing that you can do. Um, it's uh, it does kind of crowd out, uh, you know, people like yourself that, you know, to, to your point, are trying to make an iconographic photo. Uh, yeah, well, it, it, I don't think it's the people so much. I think it, it's the bands who do it. I think they're encouraging they, this uh, behavior. They give, they give too much information away, mm -hmm. and uh, you don't need to. You know, when I was when I had pictures of David Bowie on my wall when I was a teenager, I didn't want to know much about his private life. I wanted to think he lived in a spaceship and at moon dust. I didn't want to see his breakfast every morning. I I heartily agree. Uh, my uh, first uh, real interest in uh, music of my own, I usually ask a question, you know, what's what's the uh, record or an artist that, uh, you know, that you discovered on your own as opposed to your brothers or sisters or family. And to me, it was, um, you know, seeing David Bowie on uh, uh, Don Kirshner's rock concert or Midnight Special, one of the two, in about 73, 74, uh, and going, oh, my God, a space alien that plays guitar, sign me yeah. up. Exactly. Yeah. So what was it? What was that? What was it Bowie for you as well? That, that just, uh, you know, rocked your world, changed your life and made you go, geez, I need to get closer to this, uh, this activity. Well, pretty much so uh, professionally. Yeah. And then, I mean, prior to that, I always liked um, Scott Walker and the Walker brothers uh, because there were some girls who live around the corner who were a few years older than me. And when they used to babysit me, they used to play me this stuff. And I was thinking they clearly, um, you know, I one of them might be my girlfriend soon, even though they were all three or four years older than me. And I, was, I, was, I was 12 years old. Yeah. But, um, if you could Scott, be cool enough to like Scott Walker as well and maybe show a little knowledge, yeah, uh, they might uh, fall in love with you, huh? 
Yeah, so I, I, but then I did always like Scott Walker, and then because of that, and so, you know, it was an absolute dream for me when I actually got to meet him and photograph him, and similarly with Bowie, actually. Yeah, oh, I can imagine, yeah. It is yeah. rare that I ask people for an autograph, but I did get Bowie to to sign the picture I took of him when I was 19, and I said to him, it's because of you that I'm doing the job I do today, and he said... I get blamed for a lot, but I don't want to be blamed for that. <laughs> Here's a quick word from our sponsors. We'll be back in a bit. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. And now, back to the program. Oh, the true wit of uh, of uh, the uh, the the um, the Black Star. So uh, uh, the man of many names. But uh, uh, yeah, that must have been a, a real thrill. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the first time I photographed Bowie was um, during the Tim Machine period, as in um, t- took a proper portrait of him. Uh-huh. And um, I was so nervous. I couldn't really ask him to do what I wanted him to do. And he he had this terrible blouse on jacket on and like a Versace type thing. And I couldn't tell him it looked awful. And I kept taking photographs thinking, 
He's going to figure it out. He's going to figure it out. I thought we can't, I can't ask him. I can't. I, I, I was hamstrung by the fact that I'd had pictures of him on my wall. And so I took about 10 rolls of film and I knew I, we would never use any of them. And then I asked him if uh, I could watch them rehearse for a bit. And he invited me into the rehearsal space and he got changed. And then he was in a plaid shirt and jeans and he just looked so much better. And I took some pictures then. And eventually, you know, I wasn't sure whether I was allowed to take pictures, but I thought, well, I'll take them until he says I can't. Yes. And I sat on the end of the drum riser to have a cigarette and I took a picture and they heard the camera and and he looked over at me and raised an eyebrow and I took another one and then I knew I'd got the cover shot I needed. Nice. Very nice. So then... few times I photographed him, I wasn't, you know, I'd got over my fear of asking Bowie uh, to put a black T-shirt on or a coat or whatever. I was fine then. So, you know, he went from demigod to just, uh, you know, artist to you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, and I, and and it's funny actually because I've I've just been looking through some of the pictures because I took some in, um, for his fiftieth birthday oh. in in New York, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and we did a session the day after the gig at Madison Square Garden, and I, I'm photographing Bowie on the street in in the village there, and nobody is taking any notice. Really, where? Whereas now, with camera phones, I'd be lucky to get a picture of him. There'd be that many people in front of me. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. The, 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 the average Joe as paparazzi, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, and, you, and I've done some wide shots of him on the street, and nobody's looking. And it's really interesting because you get so used these days when you're shooting on the street to having an audience of about 300 people. Well, I, I have read that, that you know, the, the last uh, 10 uh, years of his life, uh, you know, in, in semi-retirement, uh, he used to walk all, all over New York and uh, not be bothered. And, and if he was, he'd basically say, oh, no, I, I look like him, but that's not me. <laughs> yeah, true. But this, you know, this was him posing as David yeah. Bowie the day yeah. after he just played NSG. So, um, you know, he was in the news, but still nobody's looking. <laughs> amazing. Amazing. All right. So it's tell you because you're from Manchester proper. I mean, you were born and raised there, right? So yeah. uh, tell us Americans, uh, mostly Americans, although we're an international show. But, you know, what, what was the scene like in Manchester in the 1970s? Uh, well, Manchester was always um, a music, you know, it was a musical city anyway. Yeah. Um, and the Hollies ho- famously come from uh, Manchester. The Hollies do, yeah. I, um, yeah, Graham Nash from Manchester. Yeah, we've had the pleasure to speak with Alan Clark. So, uh, yeah, so we know a little bit, but not, you know, tell, fill, us, fill us in some more holes for us. Well, then when, when, when punk started, um, there were a lot of a lot of punk bands came out of Manchester. And I think because we had um, a couple of clubs in Manchester that were really into, would play glam rock rather than just disco. Um, and a lot of the, the punk scene kind of grew out of this glam rock scene in Manchester. So Bowie and Roxy Music and the band called Cockney Rebel 
and Mark Bolan, they were kind of responsible for the Mancunians getting into punk in a way. So we go we go from glam, uh, you know, which is, uh, you know, over the top uh, costuming, uh, you know, to the point of uh, some sci fi uh, type of uh, of feel or you know, um, uh, or a Victorian, uh, you know, uh, lots of glitter, obviously, to the exact opposite with punk, which, you know, is kind of, um, uh, you know, a, a backlash to a lot of that, wouldn't you say? A little bit, but I think that um, a lot of people who were, who, who were in punk bands were all kind of at the age where they were finishing school and so, you know, you couldn't just go to um, a kind of, you know, you couldn't go to a shop and buy yourself a David Bowie costume. And most people's idea, most people's clothes, people think it's quite an austere look, punk in Britain. But most people were just wearing the clothes they wore for, they, they kind of finished wearing when they were at school. You know, so- they couldn't. It was very working class movements, right? And yeah. people didn't have the money to do anything but wear the clothes that they wore every day. And because they'd finished school, they were able to cut their tie up and write a slogan on their shirt. But it was still very much a school look. So it it, it was or or it it came out organically, is what you're suggesting? Yeah, absolutely. Interesting. And interesting. It, one of the biggest gigs, really. I mean, the Sex Pistols played Manchester very early. Yeah, nineteen seventy-six, um, right? Uh, yeah. This is, this is a, a year plus before uh, the the book we're going to talk about, uh, which yeah. was their last gig on on UK soil. But uh, but I think the first time you saw them was in Manchester in nineteen seventy-six, right? Yeah, there were fifty people in the audience. What do you think? Of, um, yeah, all... yeah. What I mean, you know, give us give us give us a, a a description of that night. Well, it was kind of it was curious, really, because most people it's most people's first chance to see them out um, outside London, as such. Um, and we'd read about them in the enemy, and we wanted to go and see what they were like. And I'd heard their gigs were a bit violent, so I didn't take my camera because uh, I couldn't afford to get it damaged. Right. And um, I thought I'd go and see what it was all about, and then I'd probably go and see them again and take pictures. But um, they they were great, but they played to an audience of fifty fifty two people. And interestingly, you know, the Manchester scene has sort of thrived on the mythology of Manchester that came out of this gig, so much so that about 10,000 people claim to have been at this gig. (laughs) It's uh, kind of like Woodstock. Uh, You know, anybody who's over 70 uh, that looks even remotely hippie-ish, you know, uh, says that they they attended the festival in upstate New York. Yeah, absolutely. And so, um, but if I, you know, if I had taken my camera and I'd taken a photograph of the audience, which I invariably do anyway. Yeah. Um, I could have busted the whole mythology of Manchester. And maybe we would be talking about it now. <laughs> ah, so, so the proof, the proof is in. Maybe that's why everybody carries their phones around to all the concerts now, just in case it happens again. There is documented proof of that. Yeah, exactly. 
<laughs> so okay, so um, you know the the, the Sex Pistols come in, uh, but I think uh, it's been said that if there were only fifty people in that audience, uh, all fifty of them uh, went and started a band the next day. Or took pictures of bands or wrote yeah. about them. Yeah, yeah. pretty yeah. much so. Yeah, yeah, um, uh, you know, it's a, I, that's a common uh, mythology from the Velvet Underground. You know, uh, I think it was Brian Eno once said that maybe thirty thousand people bought, uh, you know, the initial Velvet Underground uh, uh, album, but uh, uh, every one of them went and started a rock and roll band. Yeah, quite. So, so um, uh, Bowie, yeah, Bowie went to see the Velvets, didn't he? There's yeah. quite some quite nice stories about him and and, and, Lou, and the Velvet and Underground. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, certainly when when he told Lou Reed, he 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 really liked his vocal on something, and he said, "I'm not singing singing on that record." Yeah, that, sorry, that was John. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Lou Reed was uh, kind of one of the more awkward customers, I think. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. So okay, so the seventies come. Uh, you've got uh, a, a burgeoning punk scene yourselves uh, there. I think the, the Buzzcocks come from uh, from Manchester, right? Yeah, it was Cox who started it really, and then everybody grew from that. Um, and Buzzcox were responsible for promoting the gig at uh, the Sex Pistols gig at the Lesser Free Trade Hall in Manchester. So Malcolm McLaren was always um, he liked Buzzcox a lot, and he also liked me by association. So when he got to the point where the Pistols were um, having gigs cancelled all over the place and having to play under an assumed name and so on. McLaren would ring me and tell me where they were playing so that I could go to the gig. And document it. Right, right. Yeah. Uh, so the point for McLaren was really not about selling tickets, but uh, but creating a bigger and bigger brand. Well, well, exactly, except, of course, they never played. I mean, they never played so many people. They played something like, in 1977 in the UK, the Pistols played 14 gigs. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's less than your a, average in, cover band. Well, yeah, and they played, in a, in total, I think they played 82 concerts in the UK in their whole history. Yeah. And they played to less than 10,000 people in total. Yeah, in the original incarnation. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's uh, it, it, you know, it, it, it's interesting. I, you know, I I think we agree. You know, punk first started in the Bowery uh, there uh, in uh, in New York, uh, and then yeah. found its way uh, to the UK uh, via the Ramones, and then uh, you know, you guys uh, like you've done before, uh, you know, took the American strain and reinvented it in, into uh, into your own thing. So wh where where did you see the you know, why was it that those guys, you know, turned out to be such a huge marker? Was it was it just because they were really so over the top uh, and uh, and just in the face of British society? I don't think they were. I think Malcolm tried to make that. I mean, you know, if they'd been left to their own devices, they'd have played loads of gigs. They were young kids. Yeah. And they wanted to play live. Malcolm didn't want them to. He wanted to build this notoriety around them that kind of got out of hand a bit. But, you know, when the Pistols played, it, it was always an event, but it was only an event of four or 500 people at a time. Right, right, right. 
sometimes less, quite often less. Uh, but but it was the after effects, the uh, uh, the the papers, uh, you know, uh, suggesting the uh, the wildness of it or uh, the uh, uh, the anti-establishment of it that that gained the notoriety. Right. Well, absolutely. And these were people writing about it who, you know, who hadn't been to a gig. So, you know, the kind of people who wrote about uh, the Sex Pistols for the national newspapers, for the tabloids, were the kind of people who'd go and see Phil Collins or somebody. <laughs> they, you know, the Sex Pistols, the Sex Pistols were a great live band, but really, you know, they were, they were quite traditional musically. Yeah, they Just, were, they were a hard rock act uh, with yeah. some subversive lyrics when you get right down to it. And they had some good songs, you know, but they only had one album. Yeah. And that was what they, they could play. They padded that out by doing a couple of cover versions, you know, like Iggy's No Fun and so on. And, yeah. And, uh, you know, um, but, the, you know, a, a Sex Pistols gig was definitely under an hour generally. Yeah, that's it's crazy, and they're they're just so huge in the overall rock and roll story. Uh, and and, and in some ways, you know, rightfully uh, so. I mean, uh, you know, uh, I remember uh, getting uh, uh, never mind the bullocks. Here come the Sex Pistols uh, when it first arrived uh, uh, in the states. Uh, still too young enough to go to any of the shows, but. Um, uh, to me, it, it was it, it was uh, uh, quite subversive. I mean, you know, you 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 know, you were talking about uh, you know abortions and Nazis and uh, uh, you know uh, e even the enemy, uh, which you know to us Americans we're saying, okay, he's got an enemy. What does that mean? Um, uh, you know, we, oh, it's a magazine. Oh, that's crazy. You know, and so, you know, it's just, you know, and then, of course, the American tour, which, you know, we'll get to. And, uh, you know, was just, you know, that was highlight news uh, every night uh, here. Uh, so they, they did kind of, you know, Malcolm turned them into a much bigger thing then obviously what they were able to achieve, what they would have been able to achieve would say just a, one album in a standard record company marketing uh, uh, program, right? Well, I think he did to an extent, but they didn't sell many records and not enough, not many people went to see them. Um, I think with the kind of work they would have put in by playing, you know, in the first two years, a lot of bands will play 200 or more gigs. Um, and... That's what they wanted to do. They yeah. wanted to play every. They didn't yeah. want people. That's to be, how you get be, better. Yeah. They didn't want to be attacked in the street yeah. because the tabloids were saying they were the antichrist. <laughs> and this is what. But Malcolm loved that notoriety, but he wasn't the one getting attacked. Yeah. Right. 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 So, of the fourteen shows uh, in '77, how many of them did you go to and and photograph? I, I photographed two, and I went. I went to about four or five. Okay. All right. So yeah. how did you and writer who contributes the forward in the book, Paul Morley, first get hooked up together? Um, we both lived in Manchester and we used to, and there was a nucleus of people who used to go to gigs together and you'd see the same people all the time. And then Paul started freelancing for the NME in about March or April in 77 and I followed suit, you know, and, I, and we kind of, I mean, it, it must be quite difficult for 
people, North Americans, to understand. But Manchester's only 200 miles from London. Yeah. But people in London would never go to Manchester. It wouldn't <laughs> even occur to them that they, that they were even allowed to go. Right. And so we just used to bombard them with features all the time and interviews and pictures. And we'd know full well that they'd never, ever come and find out if what we were saying was true or not, right? (laughs) Sometimes it was, sometimes it wasn't. Mm. But we kind of helped, and, you know, the bands were there, and we kind of helped make Manchester a more interesting place, I think. I'm sure there were good scenes in other cities in the UK, but they didn't have a photographer and a writer at the, at the NME living there who were putting in all this, you know, we were we were putting in a lot of work. Uh, to build up the scene uh, uh, or to legitimize the scene in, in Manchester, right? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Interesting. All right. All right. So get us to Christmas Day, 1977, and uh, what would become the last Sex Pistols show on English soil. Um, It sounds like uh, it starts off with you almost getting excommunicated from your family uh, by refusing to attend the Queen's speech on television. Well, not really the Queen's speech, but the idea of leaving the house on Christmas Day in Britain in the 70s. uh, didn't even exist it wasn't even something that people would discuss and also bands didn't play on christmas day it just it was a given uh, the whole country closes down even pretty much closes down even now and uh you know there's no public transport there's nothing so um when malcolm told me that they were playing in huddersfield on christmas day uh it's only a half hour drive from manchester huddersfield so it didn't occur to me not to go. My then girlfriend's parents had other ideas and they locked her in the house. They wouldn't let her go at all. And um, my fa- if my father could have found a locksmith open on Christmas Day, he would have changed the locks. Oh. They, didn't, they didn't speak to me for three weeks after this gig. Uh-huh. It was bad enough leaving. I mean, you know, what, what are you supposed to do? Christmas Day in England is, um, you know, go gradually more and more drunk and have a huge argument with family members who you've not seen for a few months. And then, um, you know, then the seething resentment for a few weeks afterwards. And then we start Oh, we, we call that Thanksgiving here, but yes, go on. Yeah. <laughs> so that's Christmas for us. Uh, so yes, I, so I went to the gig and they played an afternoon show for um, striking... A, char- a charity event, right? It was for striking firemen and their kids Mm. and they put this gig on and then in the evening they played a a regular gig and so i went to that and malcolm asked me if i wanted to stand side stage to take pictures because he you know it made it it's much better to shoot from the stage because you get to feel what it's like to be in a band you get that massive adrenaline rush because everybody's looking up at the stage and you're part of it um and so i stood next to steve jones and just shot the whole gig from there and i i think you've said that this was one of their better gigs that you you saw them play it was and i think because they They'd had the release of just playing around with kids in the afternoon and not getting any grief from anybody and so on. 
they loved that and they you know the P pistols gigs had all, were always a bit antagonistic generally and the band were gradually falling out with one another yeah. uh, because they all had different ideas of what they wanted to do and the you know some were kind of being blamed for uh siding with mclaren and and some couldn't stand him and some wanted to just play gigs all the time and some were prepared to go along with Malcolm. The, you know, there was, it, 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 there wasn't a good atmosphere in their camp generally, but this day it was great. They were just dead chilled out and the audience felt that they were at something special too, because they'd all escaped their families for the, for the day as well. So it was just a really nice atmosphere. It wasn't aggressive at all. And and they, as a unit, uh, played uh, really well because I, I guess because they were just uh, comfortable and uh, and let the animosities uh, go away at least for that evening, huh? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and it kind of seemed that they had, were getting to a point where they were actively looking to go to looking forward to going to the states rather than not wanting to do it at all. I don't think they realized. What kind of venues, Malcolm? Yeah, what they were getting into, right? Yeah, I had no idea. You know, the the USA is the USA as far as they were concerned. It was, you know, somewhere magical to go. They didn't realize that he'd booked them into some of the worst places in the country. Yeah, right, right. We'll talk about that in a second. So, did you ever think uh, an impressively beautiful coffee table book would ever be published about the Pistols? I didn't really, and I think it's quite exciting being able to do a book of uh, just one gig. Yeah, yeah. So, to, to, you know, tell us how well, that came about, and 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 why that you know why you guys uh, settled on this just this one gig with the pictures specifically from this one gig. Because I felt it's turned it turned into, um, I think it turned into. Um, such an iconic moment and it became their last ever british gig yeah with that original well when i say original lineup yeah you're missing not, glenn matlock but uh, the original yeah. lineups glenn yeah, but yeah. um you know i think to have that um it, it became important it became very important and it and again a lot of people weren't able to go you know there was probably only four or five hundred people at this show uh, yeah, well, as you said, it was Christmas Day, so uh, you know, not too not too many of the kids uh, were able to escape uh, like you were. Oh no, absolutely not! And then if they could, they couldn't. They couldn't get there. Mm -hmm. I was lucky; I had a car. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of people in Britain, don't have, well, a lot of kids in Britain don't have cars. It's not like the US no, where no, that's common, you can yeah. get seventeenth birthday or something. Yeah, yeah. So, how did the book come together? How how did you and um, uh, and Paul, you know, get this uh, thing uh, off the ground? Um, I I've men I've mentioned it to a couple of publishers in the past, and then um, I found a publisher who was really into the idea of it, and we talked at length about not wanting it to look like a punk book, but to look more like an art book. And we, you know, it's got a nice glittery cover and it's, um, 
the commentary is only at the beginning where I've talked a little bit about it and Paul's helped to contextualise that. And then it's pretty much the complete edit. With yeah, it's maybe... about 114 pages of uh, photographs uh, with with very little text, maybe a few quotes uh, from the various guys in the band, uh, and just, you know, a, a, a bunch of beautiful shots uh, including contact uh, pages of, uh, of the band on that particular night. Yeah, so I think it worked. I, I'm really pleased with it. I think it works really well. It could have, you know, it, it was, we were taking a risk, I think. Mm -hmm. I just feel, I feel, um, I feel, I think it's very lovely. And I think, you know, the pictures were taken in my pretty much my first the end of the first year when i was shooting properly after leaving art school um and i think i'm really i'm really proud of it i think it's been worth waiting for i could have published it maybe 20 years ago and it wouldn't have been the book i wanted it to be why is that well because i think you need a publisher who's got the same vision ah yes and is prepared to back that mm -hmm. so i i just felt that they they did a great job. They were really into it, and they put a lot of time and effort into it, and let me kind of drive it a little bit as well. So, it, 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 yeah, it, your your vision wasn't uh, removed uh, as it went through the publishing. No, I'd never do that, and you know, I've, it's maybe my tenth book now, and every time I've always worked very closely with the publisher to make sure that my vision's realized because I've got quite strong ideas of how I want these things to look or else I'm just not going to do it. Right, 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 right. And that's that's uh, that's nice freedom to have. It's great, yeah, and I think it comes with trust, I guess, that people have seen what's gone before. You know, it's probably quite difficult to do that with the very first book, but I think people trust you over the years because they've seen what you've done previously and think well you know your vision's working so and then you know i think it's a collaborative effort um and i'm always prepared to collaborate so i don't i'm not a dictator mm. but i have quite strong feelings about how i want it to look you know mm, mm. I think this worked great. I think it's. I'm really pleased with that. Yeah, all black and white uh, photos. I'm sure. I'm. I'm guessing you shot only in black and white that night. Yeah, there's a handful of color near the end as well. Oh, is there? Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, because I shot some color for it because even though we didn't publish in color then, I felt that not that I thought it was ever going to be their last show, but I thought a Christmas Day show will be something that goes down in history, really. And, uh, you know, one day the English music press might publish in colour and then we've got some pictures for it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's quite an incredible package. Uh, and, you know, especially, a, 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 you know, a band that, you know, at the time uh, was considered such a great threat to British society. I know, absolutely. Yeah. Why? Why was um, that? What? I mean, I, I, yeah, we we all know. You know, uh, they 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 got on the telly and cursed. Uh, yeah, which was unforgivable back then. And even though your parents would curse all the time, um, they didn't like to hear it on TV. So, um, you know, they were quite capable of say of saying um, something along the lines of. 
those fucking sex pistols are swearing on TV. That's fucking disgusting. And <laughs> no, not really understanding the irony of that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but uh, that that kind of set them down a a, a path that uh, was uh, was hard to control uh, after that. Uh, you know, and at the same time, um, you know, uh, British society and politics is going through upheaval. Uh, you know, you're about ready to uh, elect the Iron Lady um you know for 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 good or bad uh and and they're they're, they're kind of like in the middle of this al- along with a few other bands uh, you know notably the clash uh come to mind uh in the UK um but uh you know they 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 are pointed at as some sort of degenerate other uh to worry about with the today's youth huh well, i think i th- i think um the, you know, the previous generations are always a bit wary of youth culture for some reason. Um, I'm not sure why. I think, you know, I think that's changed slowly because I think, you know, when we're talking about baby boomers and Generation X and Gen Y and millennials and all this stuff, I think there's we're more in tune with our kids now than maybe my parents' generation were with us. Yeah, well, there there was no youth culture uh, prior to the boomers. So when you get right down to it, you know, you were short pants until you became long pants, and that was yeah, exactly. It. Exactly. And so they were always afraid of it. You know, they were afraid of it. Their, their parents were afraid of it when Elvis Presley came along. So they, we've kind of got to a stage where we accept what our kids are into these days. Yeah. Where, yeah. And, and the, the media overblew it uh, in yeah. 76, 77 with, uh, with the pistols, not too dissimilar to what, uh, what they did with, uh, you know, the mod and rocker riots a, a decade earlier like in brighton beach yeah exactly absolutely just same kind of thing really and because the tabloids in the uk get hold of these stories and turn them into scare stories um it's self-perpetuating really because then you get a group of people who think right well you know they they think they're hard do they will sort sort that out and i think that's then what happened with the pistols when they came to the US because people had read all this stuff about them and they thought right well oh yeah, see- yeah. Hey, uh, the, these 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 guys were the real anarchists that was yeah. the expectation let's see what they're like in San Antonio and <laughs> Baton you know did you did you come to America with them no, I didn't. No, the first time I came to the US was about 1980. Okay. Um, I didn't go with the pistols at all, but um, we had a couple of people who worked for the enemy uh, out there, um, a guy called Joe Stevens, who was right, um, a photographer. And the stories they were telling us were quite shocking, really. So uh, why, why, why did McLaren put such an asinine tour together? Uh, because he got what he wanted from it. He got the headlines he wanted. He, he probably, you know, he probably thought it was amazingly rock and roll to get beaten up in Louisiana or Dallas or wherever else, you know. You play the Longhorn Ballroom in Dallas, yeah. in Texas. You know, the name is going to stop you going there. Yeah, yeah, and, and and of course, uh, you know, the guys uh, seem to revel 
in uh, in in the animosity uh, of it as well. So now now you have a, a war going on uh, with the you know the the edge of the stage as the no man's land. Yeah, absolutely, and it just sounded it sounded quite depressing, really, but it wasn't. That's not what I think is. I didn't think that was exciting. Yeah, I, I, I think it was only is it eight shows uh, that were done. Yeah, seven or eight, wasn't it? Yeah, seven or eight, and uh... I think schedule. And Pittsburgh was cancelled because they weren't they weren't ready or they didn't leave in time or something. And they they were going to play Pittsburgh just before um, the new year, and then they ended up cancelling that and starting in January in Atlanta. Oh, so do you think the, if they had come over uh, earlier, they might have gotten their legs underneath them a little bit better before heading down to the south? Um, well, I think if they played Pittsburgh, that might have been a little kind bit, of an a little bit, yeah, <laughs> a little easy. Yeah, it's just weird that they wouldn't start in. You know, I mean, I, I'm sorry, but uh, you know, by by '77, uh, uh, you know, the the entree to English bands was you know first through New York. And then, like, D.C., maybe Miami, obviously Los Angeles, San Francisco, you know, where culture exists. Well, exactly. That's when I've, when I've been to the U.S., and I've been about 100 times. You know, I've, I've traveled a lot in, in, in the U.S.A., but I've not uh, – I've been to Atlanta, and I've been to Texas, but I've – you know, for different reasons. I don't think if I'd have been with Blur or Morrissey, for instance, I'd have wanted to go to Dallas or Baton Rouge or, you know, um, Tulsa or right. I, I don't know. I mean, I just, but they're not, I, you know, I've been with loads of bands and like you say, it's New York, it's Boston, it's Chicago. It's San Francisco, it's LA, and then if you're lucky, you get to go to Miami as well. Right, 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 right. Yeah, nice, a nice day on the beach there down in Miami. So yeah. Um. Uh. So you know, what do you think now of that mid 1970s punk scene on on both sides of the pond? Um. Well, I th I don't know really. I th I think it had its moments. It was instrumental in helping to build British music. You know, we had a very strong post-punk scene, yeah, as did yeah. uh, LA, LA and San Francisco also had a good post-punk scene. Mm -hmm. And then we got, you know, music kind of just kept changing, you know, and we, we had different eras. We had the Smiths, Jesus and Mary Chain, then we yeah, had, yeah, the, the Manchester music scene, uh, yeah. uh, the Brit, had, Brit pop had, scene, uh, yeah. uh, uh, and all of that, right? So, uh, yeah, we have how, Happy Happy Monday stuff, yeah. is all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, how how did that? Um, you know, because especially because th this is definitely a Manchester uh, moment here. Uh, you know, the, the, the pistols are coming up from, from London, but, uh, you know, the, the bands you've just mentioned, Joy Division, Stone Roses, Happy Mondays, you know, got the Hacienda factory records and all of that. Um, you know, how, how did that shift from, you know, punk post-punk into that Madchester music scene? 
Um, I, I think it all started because I think New Order were very instrumental in this starting in Manchester mm. because they'd been, been to, they'd been to the US a couple of times and they'd been to a couple of super clubs in New York and they just liked the idea of maybe opening one in Manchester. I don't think they realised how difficult it was going to be. Um, but, you know, it was the place, it was Madonna's first gig in the UK. It was, Manchester was hugely influential. And Manchester then set the tone for the way music was in the UK for a number of years. Yeah, uh, and, and and seeped into uh, American culture. I, you know, I, I would say that uh, without it, we wouldn't have had our alt-rock scene that uh, I think you guys spit back to us. Yeah, absolutely not. And I think bands like REM and Pixies and so on maybe wouldn't have existed without that British influence. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, okay, so you, you've taken thousands of photos and uh, and hundreds of musical artists, you know. But I have to ask you about two of your muses because looking over your work, these two stand out, and that's Morrissey and Courtney Love. What was it about those two that really spoke to you, or or, or is that my own imagination? No, um, it's quite true. I think I think um, with with Morrissey, I was. Hugely into the Smiths, I thought they were great. And I'd known Morrissey since the mid-70s when he used to go just hoping to write for a music paper and he'd send reviews in of the gigs. And then he'd, if they didn't publish his review, he'd write them a letter. And then, you know, he had a dalliance with um, a band called The Nosebleeds in Manchester. And then he finally, then the Smiths ex started to exist. And... Uh, I love the Smiths. I thought they were great. And then when he went solo, I worked with him for quite a long time, actually. And I think with Morrissey, he was... The thing I like about him is he, he's very uh, media literate. He understood what would make a good picture. He might not know how, how to articulate that um, or how to realise that, but he would, you know... He trusted me to 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 make his ideas into pictures, and I bring a lot of my own ideas to it to it as well. And so we did uh, some good work. Well, with Courtney Love, um, I knew her before she was in a band when she just came over to Liverpool near Manchester and hung out there for a few months and. Kind of with the when I was in when I lived in Manchester, we used to go over to Liverpool a lot, and I was photographing their scene quite heavily. And then she was just someone on the scene in there, really, uh, hanging out with Teardrop her Explodes and so on. And then well, I, I, I've heard the exact same story about San Francisco and LA. Is she was just a girl who kind of hung around these places, and now you're saying yeah. this was the same way in Liverpool? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then she that, that girl and then, gets around. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> and then I guess when um, when Hole formed, and uh, the first time I met Courtney actually was uh, in London. First, well, the first time I re met her was in London. I was there to photograph her uh, for the NME, and she was supposed to do the pictures about. 
six o'clock in the evening and we ended up doing them at about 4am in a in her hotel room and uh she was great and she understood the power of the image you know and she made sure that there were the right books on the floor and we put the tv on with some trashy cable channel on it and you know you know we kind of crafted a picture of her at 4am in her room and I think, again, she just grew to trust me. And so she would always want me to photograph her when we were doing stuff for the enemy or if I was shooting something for or an American magazine like Spin or something. Then, or and the Japanese also liked her and I'd shoot for Japanese magazines. So I got to photograph Courtney quite a lot, a lot over a limited period. And, uh, you know, she sort of... She was quite teasing in a lot of ways in the way she, you know, you know, she work and she would kind of get semi undressed and say, get, take a picture of this. And I'd say, say, I can't, you know, I'm not going to take a picture of you like, you like that. And, um, and she said, well, I'm not putting, I'm not putting my top back on until you've taken a picture. And I said, well, I'm not taking a picture because we never use it. So we kind of got to a stage where, you know, there was a lot of trust, and so we worked well together, I think. Yeah, I, I, I agree. There's some great pictures of, of both of them. Um, both uh, controversial characters, huh? Absolutely. I think Morris has, be has become more controversial. Oh, I've not seen for a while. You know, um, the last contact I had with him, actually, was when I... I produced a book about Manchester music and he's on the cover of it. And I sent him a copy of it and he sent me a nice letter back telling me how much he liked it and um, how he was, it was just before he wrote his autobiography and he said he'd been researching certain dates, but I had them all obviously right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Next question. You spent 25 years with the NME, uh, you know, tennis chief photographer, um, first in the punk scene and then shooting Madchester, Cool Britannia of the 90s, Britpot. If you could go back in time and relive any era, what would that be and why? Uh, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think I'd ever want to relive any era. Um, there might be moments that I'd enjoy photographing that I didn't. Um, I'd quite like to, I, I mean, I, you know, I'm probably best known for doing pictures of Joy Division. Yeah. And the picture of Joy Division on the snowy bridge in Manchester in 1979. If I could go back there, back there with the equipment I've got now, I'd probably take a slightly better picture because I, I can see things that are wrong in it. But I suppose it's the naivety of I was working then and the band were, that makes that such a great picture. Right. Right, right, right. It, it, but it is, it's such an iconic picture now. Uh, why would you want to change it? Well, because I'd probably use a slightly wider angle lens and make sure um, the bars of the bridge were parallel or something. Uh, okay. <laughs> Technically. <laughs> details, details, details. But I think, um, you know, it's become the picture that defines the band. And yeah. I think that's quite a tribute to it. It's um, it's very interesting because it, it clearly it wasn't shot to be the picture that defined them. Yeah. Um, but I always, always felt it would be a picture 
that maybe gave, informed people who hadn't heard them. If they saw that picture, they'd instantly know what their music sounded like. Uh, yeah, which is kind of uh, dark uh, and cold uh, to begin with, uh, uh, and, 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 and unfortunately, you know, just a short time with Ian Curtis, right? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, that was, that was sad. So uh, you also taken a lot of pictures of Oasis, and it sounds like uh, your chat, a recent chat with pal Noel Gallagher is fueling more rumors of a reunion. Uh, I'm not uh, yeah, sure the uh, question should be if, it's just a question of when it will happen, right? Uh, no, it won't happen. You don't think so? You don't think those guys no. will finally one day just bury the hatchet and get back on the road no wow. i think um i think they'd have done it by now if they were going to do it that is too bad that uh, you know uh, that's that, that 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 was a huge huge band uh there uh and and one of the last in you know the 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 rock and roll era i i think you and i might agree that you know once you start to turn the clock into this new uh century or millennium whatever you want to call it you know rock and roll itself has kind of faded from a you know culturally important art form there's still some great rock and roll out there but it's being replaced by by other things right I think so. I think um, we can blame digital a bit for that because it's made everything so accessible. So while that's very democratic, it's also made it very different the way we view and listen to, to music. And, um, you know, I agree with Noel. Noel said, you know, we were the last great analog band. Yeah. And, um, and people came to our gigs and didn't all have camera phones. And if we reformed, everyone would have a camera phone no one would be getting into the moment yeah yeah so uh, do, you know is, is there a new scene bubbling somewhere that you can tell us about over there well you know i think i don't think there's there's there isn't any kind of rock and roll thing grimes quite big in the uk but yeah. i don't think we have we don't have superstars at the moment and I think that's partly, be, like I, we were saying earlier, I think that's partly because bands don't really understand how to let others control that building of iconography. Um, there, Everyone's so accessible, and maybe that's a good thing, and maybe things are changing, but to me, I want a, I want a rock star who looks great on kids' bedroom walls as well, you know. Yeah, but they, you know, I, I think, um, you know, we, we've discussed this throughout the, the interview today that uh, uh, it's just become common, uh, I think, is the word to use. Mm, absolutely. And that's that's a sad uh, uh, occurrence uh, when, you know, for us, music was life. Yeah, but I, like you say, I think now, you know, a lot of people don't buy a whole, you, you know, you don't look forward to an album coming out. You'll buy three or four tracks. People don't buy music in the same way. No. And a lot of people who buy music and who are buying music on vinyl and on box sets and reissues are people of our generation who bought it in the first place and want a sexier copy. 
<laughs> yeah, because uh, let's face it, we we we've bought the same music uh, several times over. Uh, if uh, if you've lived in those uh, those generations, and now we're getting it repackaged with a few extra tracks and right. a nice book, right. <laughs> and that's it. Yeah, yeah. You know, so I, do you think we'll ever see those times again, or or was this this really unique special moment in music history? I think it's a moment. I think I think moments like that change, and I th I'm sure in ten or twenty years' time, when uh, people have kind of got to grips with digital and don't overuse it, uh, I think we'll get another moment. Oh, but, that's you know, an interesting way to put it. I think we overuse it at the moment, and we're we're not maybe using it. Um, we're not using it progressively. We're just, it's just there and everything's available for you. You know, there's kind of, you don't get the same excitement as when, for me, when I was in my teens and early 20s and Marquee Moon came out, the guy at Virgin Records in oh, Manchester. Television. Yeah, yeah he, bought, he bought 20 copies early on the import because we could get it three days earlier from the US before it came out in, in England. And he knew the people who would want that. And you'd wait weeks sometimes. You'd be so excited about a record coming out. But now you just, you know, if I'm talking to you and I say, oh, there's a band called um, uh, The Sundowners, and you don't say, oh, great, can you put me a tape together? And I think, well, there's nothing available yet. And But there's a demo that I know somebody's got. And it's whereas now you just click a button and you can you could be listening to it while we're talking. There's no value to it. There is a value, but I think the values have changed. I think um, I, I just find it... Yeah, maybe the word it, better used is commoditized. Yeah, it's, it is more, and I don't think I don't think there's the same excitement. I think people get excited about going to gigs, but they're only getting excited about going to a gig because they want to take a picture of it and show how hip they are on Instagram. Yeah, yeah. Look at me. Look at me. Not, uh, you know, the experience itself. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, which again a common theme through our uh, our interview today. So, you know, well, uh, you know, we've talked about this, and we've talked about photography and, and and the smartphone, and everybody's got one. You know, where where is the future of music photography going? Uh, well, there's not many outlets for it these days um, because people aren't buying people are buying music digitally, so you don't necessarily need a band shot. Um, there's hard, there's no music papers in the UK. There's two or three magaz monthly magazines that work with a kind of mixture of nostalgia and the occasional new band. And that's kind of it, really. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of like, uh, you know, growing up, uh, you know, after... You know, you know, I was born 15 years after the end of World War II, and it just kind of reminds me of that. It's like uh, 
you know, these nostalgic type of, uh, you know, these pieces to for 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 those old veterans to relive and and or or or, or the public that suffered through those uh, events. And and it's uh, you know, it's the same sort of thing where, you know, we're 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 looking at our memories and there's this nostalgic quality to it. This this was our our World War Two. Yeah, I, I agree with you to a certain extent. I think um, we're we're now in a position with coronavirus where all the gigs for the next few months in the UK are going to be cancelled today. Same, same here. Yeah. Um, and we might, you know, we're all going to be sitting in at home listening to digital music. Um, so the live experience is going to be taken from everybody for the next few months. And it'll be interesting to see how bands cope with that, because that's where bands are making their money on live shows. They're not making it on recording. Oh, on you're, any... you're going to have people going bankrupt because they can't uh, tour. Well, and venues will be going bankrupt. And yeah. theatre and it's going to be a very, very, we're going to be in a very odd place for a few months. Yeah, or years, uh, depending on how long this goes on. But luckily, you know, if it if it was 1977, I'm not sure what we'd do. But <laughs> at, least, at least we've got access to everything now through our computers at home. Yeah, in our in our own little pods. Uh, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We well, don't it, meet anyone. Self isolation's been there for for a while, I think. Yeah, well, uh, now now it's being demanded of us, but uh, but yeah, a, a lot of people have been willing to uh, retreat back into their uh, little hive. Mm. Mm. Well, it's a great book, Sex Pistols. Uh, the end is near. Uh, twenty five twelve seventy seven in European fashion. That would be Christmas Day, nineteen seventy seven. Uh, what what's next for Kevin Cummings? I've just I'm doing a very very limited edition book, um, 125 copies. So it's more like an artwork, and it's oh. called Memento Mori, and it's a book of lots of the items people have left on the Curtis's grave over the last few years. Oh, okay, all right. And then, so you oh, go um, there. You must go there every so often and shoot. Yeah. Yeah, so I'd go up there and I'd take a black cloth and I'd shoot it studio style at single items on a black cloth. And then I've, I'm working on a book about Britpop and British music in the 90s, which is going to be out in late September, hopefully. Well, we look forward to uh, seeing uh, both of those uh, in the near future. Thanks so much for being with us on Deeper Digs and Rock today, Kevin Cummins. Cheers. Thanks very much. Big, big hand for Kevin Cummings. 
lots of fun discussing the UK music scene and especially uh, about the Sex Pistols. Uh, I'm not sure how great uh, McLaren was for the band, but he certainly did a good job having Kevin photograph them uh, so many times, and that was definitely the right choice. So glad that happened, and now we have this amazing book for any Sex Pistol fan. Sex Pistols, The End is Near, 25-12-77, so go out and grab a copy for yourself. So uh, how dangerous is rock and roll? Eh, I guess it depends on who you ask. Uh, In some ways, uh, I think rock and roll is very dangerous, uh, especially to liars, charlatans, and those who do not understand what the pursuit of happiness is really all about. Um, But I'm probably in the minority. Of course, as we uh, know now, rock and roll never truly endangered the establishment, though it fueled changes in our society in many ways, uh, cultural changes that needed changing. Um, It certainly championed new ways of thinking and behaving. And as we know, rock and roll music was the currency to young people, the touchstones that informed um, at least two generations. I kind of put the Sex Pistols scare in England on par to the Mods versus Rockers, quote, riots, unquote, a decade before. In other words, much ado about nothing, but could certainly sell a lot of papers. I mean, Johnny Rotten and Company weren't real anarchists like say, the MC5 or even their contemporaries, uh, The Clash, or more recently, you know, like somebody like Rage Against the Machine. I wish rock and roll took a more militant stand, but that is rare and usually turns out bad for the bands that do try to exact some flesh from the establishment. You know, we spoke to Wayne Kramer of the MC5 not too long ago about that. No. It's just art commenting on the times, um, good and or bad. And even that was pretty minimal. Most songs are really just about the human condition and rarely, if ever, get uh, political or cultural even. Um, For every The Times They Are a Changing or a Gimme gimme Shelter, um, there are 1,000 silly love songs. The Pistols were formed during a dark time in the UK, especially for the working class. Uh, Thatcherism had arrived, and Reaganism in America was just around the corner, so someone needed to shout at the top of their lungs. Uh, Some did, like the Pistols, and many, many others, but artists can't actually change the world, and they can only inform it, uh, comment on it, and hopefully change a few people's minds a little. It certainly did for me, and I kind of bet it did for you, too. But has it ever warranted the vitriol and scorn from the establishment or from the sheeple masses? <laughs> Hell no. It's just an excuse to minimize the change folks are looking for, and especially the voices of rock and roll, who mostly came from a lower working class strata of society, both here and in the UK. You know, never forget rock and roll comes out of black music. And we in America know what that means. I'm sure the BBC felt uh, similarly about Johnny Rotten and the gang. Uh, But a threat to civil society? Come on. Still, there is a message. And if it is picked up by the people, uh, it should or could be heeded. But of course, that is rare, um, if ever, to be heard as, as well. 
There can only be so many clarion calls to the establishment before the pitchforks and torches do start appearing. I think there was a moment in the music, um, but that was in the late 60s, and, and even that was mostly a failure. Though I will go uh, to my dying day certain that the dirty fucking hippies were right. The Pistols and their contemporaries were raging against the machine with just louder guitars and a more in-your-face attitude. But the warnings were the same as the previous generation's music. Uh, The establishment was keeping the people down, and we knew it. It's been done several times since. And now, given our current situation, I have a feeling it's about to come back once again. And I, for one, welcome it with all my heart and passion, Only this time, there may be some pitchforks and torches to go along with the music, because the establishment just hasn't been listening all these years. Okay, that's it for this week. Go and get Kevin Cummings' new book, Sex Pistols, The End is Near, 251277. Oh, and of course, if you need something from adamandeve.com, use the code DIGS at checkout. Talk to you all next week. Keep up the rocking. Deeper Digs in Rocks, produced and hosted by Christian Swain. All sound design and incidental music by Busy Signal Studios. Find all of our shows, notes, social, and links at www.pantheonpodcast.com or wherever you listen to great podcasts. All songs can be found for purchase on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play. Please purchase these great and important tracks. Find us on Facebook at the RNRAP. We are on Instagram at RNR Archaeology. Tweet us at RNR Archaeology. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. 
Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.